I'm taking it. Of course, I can't send it to you right now because it will screw up my Mexican bandwidth. Hello and welcome to the Fizzle Show. What do you think? You like that one better? Or worse? Or should I just stick with the ring? Hello and welcome to the Fizzle Show. Too many interesting small businesses fail because the founders, though they have great ideas, they don't know about the practices of independent, sustainable businesses online and end up burning out or end up not making any money ever. So we're here to fill in those gaps. You know who we are? Your hosts are three dudes who are doing this thing at fizzle.co, right? Corbett Barr, if we were uh, types of wine, Corbett would be a Chianti. To some, it seems uh, like a common wine, but, but to those who've been to the right places, it's an absolute gem. Caleb Wojcik, he'd be big old buttery oaky Cali Chardonnay because he's a big old buttery oaky Cali kind of guy. <laughs> And me, Chase Reeves. I'd be an Alsatian white, weirdly shaped, hard to find, over fruity, but in the right environment, I can really get things moving. <laughs> Thanks to D. Copeland Patience for putting that one together for us, for giving us the idea for using wine. In this episode, we're talking more about money. February is, mo- February is money month at the Fizzle Show. January was all about how to make your first product. Because if you're making things online, you realize real quickly, you don't make any money until you make something to sell. And this month is all about that last bit, something to sell. (laughs) So how do we sell things? What are the money things that we need to think about? And in this episode, we deal with a lot of stuff. It's a long road to go from, oh, sure, I'll work for you for free, to... Oh, I'm really sorry. You just won't be able to afford me. I know what I'm worth. Uh, Here's a list of people that work at that rate. I think we'd all love to be at at that last one instead of the first one. But there's a lot of things to deal with along the way. So we talk through that sort of, I don't know, all those things that you learned there in this episode. It's a great conversation. and I'll be back afterwards to fill in any gaps. So let's get into it. Does it sound like I have echo on your end or is it all good? No, you're good. better now. Yeah. Okay, cool. I, I put a little... I wrapped myself in a yoga mat, so... <laughs> <laughs> Can you please leave this part in? <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. I'm gonna, I'll take a photo for you. Can you please? God, I can't wait to see what this looks like. Did you take a picture yet? Are yeah, you taking it? I'm, I'm taking it. Can of course, you... I can't send it to you right now because it will screw up my Mexican bandwidth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so today what we're going to talk about is some more money stuff. February is money month at the Fizzle Show and the Sparkline. Does that mean this month is money? Like yeah, it's, this, it's so money, it's, dog. It's so money, bro. You're nice. so money. Do you ever feel like uh, Corbett? You from the start were like, we need to have a name for the blog at Fizzle, and I just realized like what, we could just call it the Fizzle Blog. Why did we come up with the Sparkline as as the name for it? Why did Why did you feel like that was uh, important? Well, we went back and forth. I mean, we we wanted it to be able to stand on its own, partly just so that yeah. when we wrote for it, it wasn't just a place where we were writing product updates about Fizzle. It yeah. was the kind of thing that people could refer to 
you know, oh, I read the Sparkline, regardless of if they know or care about what Fizzle is. We just wanted it to be its own thing. And partly that's based on, you know, other people that we looked at. There are product companies out there that have blogs that are just named after their product. And that's cool. Um, and sometimes those are really good, but most often they're not. And then there are others like, um, for example, 37 Signals. They have signal versus noise, which, you know, I think you do refer to on its own. You don't just say the 37 Signals blog, yeah. although some people do. I don't know. It, it It's just a thing, you know, we could have gone either way. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I was just thinking about that the other day. I'm kind of trying trying to remember like why we did that. No, it's a good reminder. Um, okay, so money stuff, money stuff. All right, we talked last week uh, in the Fizzle Show about thinking through the money things. Whether you have, you know, the, those amazing quotes from Seth Godin about if money is an emotional issue for you, and uh, what else was was he talking about? He talked about a lot of stuff. Wait, hold on, I got my notes right here. Uh, my favorite in our culture, making more money feels like winning and winning feels like the point. And, you know, just built into that quote is like, what, what is the point? And we talked a lot about that kind of stuff today. Let's get a little more specific about, um, I, I, I hesitated to get into pricing cause we've done that a few times on the show, but in some ways we've got to start there because a lot of the independent entrepreneur bootstrapper types, they've got a product out there or they're thinking about making a product. And there's a big question about how much do I charge for this thing? Okay. So for a quickie, I'm just going to take this and let you guys say anything as a quickies before we go on to the next stuff. Um, but basically I want to reiterate the point that I made in episode 36, where we talked about pricing hangups my point was that the biggest thing is really the conviction about how valuable you feel like your product is. If it's a book about how to create, you know, how how to how to make cupcakes and you feel like you found an audience that uh that really really wants to know how to make cupcakes and that really solves their problem, that's different than it's how to make cupcakes and like yeah, a lot of people want to know how to do it but like they're not going to pay a bunch of money for it. So it's this kind of sensitivity that you need to have and, and, and the conviction about how valuable your thing ends up being. Not just like if you could get someone to sit down and use it, man, they'd really, but also like to them before they even know what's inside of this thing, just based on the sales page, like, wow, I, I got to have this thing. Um, so that's my one bit on, on pricing. Go back and listen to episode 36. And Caleb, have we done another episode on pricing? I feel I like, feel we, like have, we have, but I'm looking through and I don't see another one. But there um, are six, well, there's like four blog posts in the show notes of episode 36. If you go to fizzleshow.co slash 36, yeah. that, that right there can talk you through a lot. Of, some of our thoughts on pricing, some of the thoughts of some of the people that we're closest friends with. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't think we need to but, talk too much more about it. But Yeah. So, so we, uh, I mean, we decided... Today, it's not just about, we're not going to be talking about pricing as in, should I make this thing $29 or $39 and how do I know what the right answer is, right? We're yeah, going to talk yeah. more about the psychology of how to get paid what you're worth and how to raise your prices over time. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. But I, but I feel like a, a, a discussion about money almost all, maybe doesn't have to start with pricing. In some ways, it feels like that's typically, I just hate when people are not making their product because they're still thinking about what they're going to charge for it. In some ways, I kind of want them to just to just make the decision and, and move on and make the thing and get it out there and then iterate over time. Or when they tell you about a product and in like the second sentence, they tell you what they're going to charge instead of talking about what it actually does sure. and helps yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. With. 
yeah, yeah. they swinging on the opposite side of the spectrum. But yes, you're right, Corbett. Like, I really what I, what I want to get into in this episode specifically is that psychology of getting paid. What's your worth? Understanding what you are worth, knowing what to charge, how to raise rates and get up to there. You know these these sorts of things. And event, and I do want to tell our story on why we price fizzled the way we did, how we thought about that, and where how we came to that decision. Even though it goes completely against a very common practice. And a, and a best practice, you know, we could be converting more and making more money if we changed one particular thing in our pricing. And I want to get into that towards the end of the show. But 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 first, like, uh, on general pricing stuff, I think the best advice, yeah, it's kind of is really going to be look at that Nathan Barry article that's going to be in the show notes. I'll put it in the show notes here. This fizzleshow.co slash 41. Um, and for the, so for the specifics and the details on kind of Corbett to what you're getting to pricing your thing at 29 versus 39, how to tell the difference and what's more important than this, that, and the other. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's get into this, to the real meat, the, the psychology of this stuff. And what I'm really, Caleb, I want you to tell the story of your wife's wedding photography business and how she kind of was so uncomfortable about charging anything up okay. front. So she started out doing photography, about three years ago, we got our first DSLR. I was still working at Boeing. She was working at a law firm and she just wanted to try it out. She was thinking about maybe going to grad school for art history or becoming a photographer. So we got a DSLR. Um, she got really into using it. We took an intro to photography class at a community college, like super basic stuff. And this was just about three years ago. Then after I started working with Corbett, left my job, we were traveling. We went all over the country for three months. She took pictures of any single person we stayed with, basically friends, family, um, people that like followed me on Twitter. She did like photo sessions with um, couples, families, kids, everything, um, hmm. just to get experience. And she would not charge anyone anything, which is fine. And I think that that's what you should be doing at the beginning. You should be doing a lot of free work. When you're blogging, it's for free. When you're podcasting, it's for free. You know, you're you're sharing your talent, your skills with people for free. And then it came to a point when she felt like she could start charging people. And, you know, that early amount that she was comfortable charging people was, you know, $50, $100, $150, $200. And it just slowly worked its way up. And then when she started actually getting some wedding inquiries and wedding clients, she was comfortable flexing a little bit on, on her packages to customize them for people because she really... She really wanted clients. Speaking from personal experience, I love it when your wife flexes her packages. Just because she's really good at it. And I mean that in all sincerity. Sure. Um, so I'm really glad that she got used to doing that because it's really hard um, to learn how to flex your, your own package. Especially yeah. if you have two of them, you know? Yeah, prove, prove, uh, prove that you know what one of her packages is. Tell us the name of it right now. Yeah, I, well, to be honest, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil the surprise. I'm sure Caleb's getting to that. So, so I really want to be respectful of, of Caleb there, um, <laughs> which is why I'm talking about his wife's packages. But I'm really glad that she learned how to flex it. I just, I just wanted to put that out there for people, for listeners to be like, okay, yeah, I need to learn how to flex my package. Yeah. Okay, keep going. Can Caleb. you name this episode that? <laughs> yeah, flexing your package with Caleb Wojcik's wife. <laughs> <laughs> so she got to the point where she had inquiries. She was meeting with clients, um, and she was comfortable charging different amounts for her different uh wedding packages so eventually you know time goes on getting more clients getting more inquiries she got to the point where she's like no these are my prices now if you can't pay for this 
tier of whatever you're looking for. Um, you know, I could I could try to customize using a la carte, but it's probably going to cost more. And so she got hard and fast on what she was charging for photo sessions and for weddings. And so there, there's kind of those three stages that I saw where she was only comfortable doing stuff for free. And if she even got like $25 from someone, she felt guilty. Um, and then she started to value her work, but she wasn't comfortable charging a lot. And then she got to this point down the road and where she's at now, where these are my prices. If you can't pay them, it makes her sound like a bad guy. But but if you can't afford to pay for me, then you're probably, you should probably look for a different photographer. Hmm. And I think rem- mentally, I think it just took time for her to get comfortable with the skills to do that. But at the same time, mentally with the money too, to feel comfortable charging what she was worth. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way you phrase that towards the end where, where she is now. Like if you're not comfortable with my prices and you, you can't afford it, then you should probably find a different photographer like mm-hmm. that to get to that point. There was a question in, in the, at the end of January, uh, episode 39, about what does it look like to turn pro in my business? Um, uh, Kiri from ilikethatlamp.com asked, what, is, what, would it, what would it look like to, to turn pro in this? Um, and we, kinda, we, we talked a lot about it there, but this is a great way of saying what pro looks like for a wedding pho- photographer, to be able to say, this is what I what I charge. If you can't afford that, that's totally fine. Here's a list of other photographers to go with. Mm-hmm. I love I love the 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 I don't know because t- I know it takes so much it takes so much balls to get to that sort of position. And that, that's not actually I'm not saying anything about your wife's packages or anything, but it just it takes. <laughs> How long is this if, gonna go? Because I wonder if that. <laughs> I think it's funny. <laughs> like I okay good as long as you think it's funny good because I didn't want people to think that we were being too mean. Because uh, Caleb's just gonna walk up and punch you in the face next time you see him. <laughs> It's true. Um, so, but no, but truly though, to get to the amount, to get to the place where you can have that kind of a spine in your business to say, well, this is what it costs. It, to me, the best that where I first started really interacting with that was was when I started to get to know Chris Johnson of Simplifilm, and in the founder story that we did in Fizzle with him, which is still, you know, we titled it a masterclass in sales, and it really is that because of that. In some ways, the biggest thing is this outlook uh, about. He very much, very strongly feels like, listen, I'm going to sell ten of these videos this month. I don't care if it's going to be to you or someone else. Right. So it's not a ma- it's not a matter of this desperation. It's not a matter of like, let me convince you. It's a matter of either this is right for you or it's not, and I'm not in control of convincing you of that necessarily. These are the facts. These are our results. This is the, the expected ROI you can have. This is what you're going you're going to get. This is what we need from you up front. This is what the process looks like. Right. This is all the reality of you getting a video that really talks about what your business does extremely well. That communicates and resonates in an emotional way with your with your audience. So that's what I sell. I it might be right for you or it might not. That's not my place to say. Yeah. Now there's you know a flip side to this though. What if you are struggling to fly to find any clients and you feel like you just want to get some work and you just want to get paid for something? It's better to put five hundred dollars in your pocket this month than nothing at all. Yeah. Even if your price is supposed to be two thousand or whatever. You know, how does that work exactly? And, and I think there are a couple of different answers to that. I mean, one is, um, you can take the high road and continue to try to sell $2,000 packages and hope that you sell one over the course of a couple of months at least, um, which makes up for the fact that you, you know, you're selling fewer of them. But, um, 
there's a real temptation to discount your prices in the beginning and and sometimes a bit of a need to and i guess maybe that's the the stage that you were talking about before Caleb and and mm-hmm. i guess maybe Jen has a little bit more flexibility because she's in a two earner household sort of situation but yeah. what if you're out on your own and and you just need to yeah. earn some money like what are the options for you then well i mean as a person who's done it as a freelance designer for a long time it was it was taking and videographer i took whatever work i could possibly get right you know but just anything i could get and corbett like remember we did we did richard bemke who who won the the think traffic uh contest that we did a while ago to have a a year of mentorship with you yeah i mean the first thing you started doing with him was like here's what we're gonna do we're gonna pound the pavement we're gonna go get as much work as we as we can we're gonna put together a couple packages hint hint wink wink we're gonna learn how to flex them you know whatever these sorts of things but that desperation i mean i when i look back like that was there was a there was a kind there was a, a fear and a hunger there that that for me why i was so afraid and why it felt so unnatural because it was because i actually wasn't a pro yet i actually wasn't that good at design and actually even if i was great at design i was really not good at the client process stuff you know and that's what ends up being in businesses like like wedding photography simpla film i see this all the time with chris at simpla film and my buddies at epiphio and all this other places when you're doing a freelance kind of or or creative service for someone else the creativity the the package the thing that you sell to them the video or the or the design or whatever is almost maybe 30% of the actual work that, that gets done. If you can just steward that client well through the course of that relationship or the, through, the, through that process, there you could give them a super subpar product at the end and they'd still be so fired up about it. They would not know. You know, of course, you don't want, that's not the goal. The goal is you give them a great thing and they're really fired up about it. But I've given people really great things that they've hated because I've done a bad job of managing their, 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 the process, basically. So I don't know why I get stuck on that, but, be, but because I wasn't pro in my business before, I would just take whatever I possibly could. And, and that looked like just kind of going to conferences and hoping to God that I meet someone that needs a website, you know? Caleb, well, I, think- I, I- I was going to say, I, I think I recall that um, you and Jen, or at least Jen, attended some workshops with pros uh, that might have helped with the pricing thing as well. Yeah, so about a month into us being settled, so probably four months into her doing photography, we went to WPPI, which is Wedding and Portrait Photographers International. It's a huge photography conference in Vegas each year. And we went to like the beginner workshops that were like two days before the conference. And then during the conference, we like split up and each went to different sessions. And we like took it super seriously because I think when you are like a very, very beginner or you're just getting started, that's when conferences, at least the sessions are super, super valuable because they're geared towards those types of people and you can learn a ton. So I did, I do think we shortcut a lot of the things specifically pricing by going to that conference by attending a lot of different things and just seeing what all these other people are doing and willing to share but th- there's like specific people that were like this is how i do pricing and this is how yeah I it's that kind of specificity that, that gets so helpful when you're when you're when you're at when you're a wedding photographer at a wedding photography conference yeah. that's amazing you know for new media expo or, or south by southwest or something like that it's very broad we have all these tracks between podcasters and this, that, and the other. And so you never really know what you end up getting. But it's almost like if you could do a, if you're a food blogger, 
right? Or a diet blogger or, or whatever. Let's say travel blogger. If there's a travel blogger conference, you're going to be really fired up about just about every session you're able to attend. Yeah. You know, and there is that, one. Yeah. I'm, I, no doubt. I bet there is. So, <laughs> but, um, so that, okay. the, the other thing about that, I think, is there's this psychology where when you realize what other people are charging, then you feel a lot better about charging something similar yourself. Mm-hmm. When you get started, it's really easy to think, you know, that you're not worth that much or whatever. And like Chase said, maybe you're not. Maybe you're sort of mediocre in the beginning. But you don't realize that you have to charge a hell of a lot more than you think in order to actually pay your bills and and make your number, whatever that is for the year. Because there's so much, as a freelancer or as a service provider, there is so much time that you have to put into marketing and just client relationship stuff that doesn't end up being charged or billed for that you probably have to charge at least double, maybe quadruple what you think you're going to have to charge in order to actually pay your bills. So that means, you know, maybe you were thinking, oh, I'll just charge 50 bucks an hour. No, you probably are going to have to charge $200 an hour. Um, and in, you know, in order to live off of that. And I think partially that's educating your clients or customers too, because they'll be like, oh, well, I'm going to pay you $300 an hour to do this thing. And it's like, yes, because to even get you as a client, I had to spend 10 hours or whatever, you know, mm. doing administrative or logistical stuff to even get to that point. So like you're saying, Corbett, you have to figure out what you're going to be able to charge people that are willing to pay you to pay for all the other time and effort and energy that you're going to have to put into other things yeah, to keep yeah. getting clients. And then you're going to realize that, you know, if, if, if you now know that you have to charge $200 instead of $50 an hour, there are going to be hundreds of people out there charging 50 bucks an hour and you're going to get clients that come to you and say oh well you know so and so is charging 50 bucks an hour so can you you know can you do the work for that much and then it becomes a game of convincing them that your quality or the way that you handle this specific situation is better for them and one of the ways to do that is to focus on a specific crew so if you're just a general purpose photographer it's going to be hard to convince someone um, that needs a puppy photo that you're worth X dollars when there's someone else out there who's specific, or who is specifically focused on puppy photos, right? They're going to have a much easier time charging that much because they have this whole catalog of work that shows how good they are at that one specific thing. That's where, you know, for me as a web designer strategist for a little while, um, because I focused on building sites that were intended to grow a big audience it was much easier to get work than if I just said I'm a general purpose web designer. And, and yeah. pricing yourself at different levels will bring you different types of clients. So like you were saying, if you charge $50 an hour, you're going to get people that only want to pay $50 an hour. If someone can afford to pay $300 an hour, they're not going to hire someone that pays that, that is $50 an hour because they want yeah. the quality and the expertise of someone that's raised their rates enough to get up to that $300 an hour, $500 an hour, $1,000 an hour rate. Because that person's, you know, they most likely have the skills to charge that much. Because if they didn't have the skills to charge that much, they wouldn't be charging that much because they would Mm. be broke because no one would Mm. actually pay them for it. Yeah. And I got to say, for people starting out, (coughs) like, I'm glad. So I try, what I did is I tried to start, I left this company I was at uh, that I didn't like. This was six years ago and tried to do essentially what they were doing on my own, 
doing some some web videos and uh, et cetera, et cetera. I put up a website and thought that I would, you know, start making client, getting clients. Right, that did not work that way. After a few months, I, you know, just hadn't made any money. Basically, I had a few small clients and and I, and a bunch of things sort of that I was uh, the people that I was talking to, but it wasn't I wasn't selling. It wasn't working. Right, and halfway because I didn't know what I was doing, even the product I was making. Right, so eventually I had to go back to work, and I got a, I got a job here in Portland at a startup. Ended up being the best thing I could have done because it was a small company. I learned so much about dealing with big companies, about whatever, just all the stuff. And I was the marketing director here, just kind of as the you know the token savvy web kid in the startup, right, trying to understand social media and things like that. But while I was doing that on the side, I always kept sort of doing some design stuff. I was always doing little projects. After three years of doing those projects on the side, I knew what it was like to put together a good website. And more importantly, I knew what it was like to deal with a client who needed that website and create a really great experience for them, something they'd be happy with. <clears throat> so that's afterwards, that's why I was able to quit at, my, at the startup and go off on my own because I was fi- I had finally done the work to learn how to turn pro, so to speak, and not and as, it wasn't just how to build the thing and how to how to sell the thing and how to manage the client over time. It was also the personal network. At that point, I had become friends with guys like you, Corbett, and and you know Derek Halpern and Chris Pearson and all of these people. And I I wanted to work to your point, Corbett, with about I wanted to work with people who already had successful blogs, but who had Frankensteined their brands to where they are now, bootstrapping all the way. And I wanted to put together a solid brand for them. So that's why I ended up working with Nerd Fitness and Pat Flynn and, and you, Corbett, because I just targeted those people. And I had done three years of work getting to know them by going to the conferences and hanging out and, and just basically being myself. So all that to say, it wasn't a pricing thing for me. It took three or four years of dealing with what it's like to actually do this work, and then I could start having those conversations with myself like that that your wife was having, Caleb, about am I okay saying no? This is going to cost you four or five thousand dollars, and if you can't afford that, that's fine. Uh, that and that's when business really started to change for me. And I, and I just, <coughs> the reason why I, I still kind of land there because that was so formative. I just remember putting so much pressure on myself, trying to raise rates or trying to this, that, and the other when I, I just wasn't ready. I didn't feel cor- like right about it yet. And going back, I wish I would have told myself, you know what? Let this take four or five years of developing these skills because you're getting really, really good at this thing. And just like a carpenter takes about three to five years to, as an apprentice before he can kind of jump out on his own to do his own thing. You need to think about this work the same exact way, the same with wedding photography and stuff like that. Once you've dealt with so many clients, now you know so much in five years how to have that conversation then. So I guess what, what I'm really getting at is you're starting somewhere right now. You need to get really good at your thing and that takes time. So take the pressure off, allow it to take three or four or five years. Maybe you're already past that and, and, we can move on to the next part where it's about how do I raise my rates? How do I actually understand what I'm, what I, what I'm worth and then bring my rates up to that? But I just think it's such a big, I don't know, Caleb, hearing your wife's story, it just makes so much sense. This, is such an, this was such a formative and important part of my journey to, I don't know, whatever, where I am now or something. Is that making any sense? Am I rambling over here? Yeah, and I think we want to talk a little bit about how <laughs> yeah, to yeah, raise he's rambling. prices. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes, and we're going yes, to talk about that. Yeah. yeah. So I think that there are a couple things with raising prices. The first one, um, and this I think I heard from Danielle Laporte the first time, was you know do do the free work. 
build your network, build your portfolio, do as much as you can, coach as many people, offer free products and stuff for people. But but pick a timeline. Say, I'm doing that for 12 months. I'm doing that for 18 months. I think she says, I'm going to whore myself out for however long this is, and then I'm going to start charging money for it and draw a line in the sand and don't do free work after that point. I think that that's one way to do it. But then later, when you are charging however much, how would you guys raise your prices? Not only for current customers, but for future customers. Um, <clears throat> well, for current customers, one thing to do is is you reach out to all of them. Uh, and, I mean, so these are people who have an existing relationship. I mean, they're not you don't have a project going with them right now. But say like you you have twenty five people that you've worked with over the last two years, and you're about to raise your rates. One good thing to do is reach out to them. I'll send an email saying like, "Hey, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be raising raising my rates to to X." And if you'd like, we could do another project uh, for a for a discounted version of that before we get to that. That not only is that a great little sales role, a uh, sales tactic, but it also it provides the foundation for them that like the next time they work with you, you're going to be ra- it's going to be more expensive because you've gotten better. But it gives them the chance if you still want to work with me at my current rates. You know, yep. that kind of thing. And it kind of kind of forces their hand into like, okay, do I need to do this or not? It, it's good. It's a really good tactic. I've done that before. Um, that's for current people. What, with, before with, you move with, on to future yeah. people, what if you have an ongoing project? Like, let's say you do freelance stuff for someone four or five, six times a year. How do you approach that? Because I've that's, done it in, yeah, the past, tough, yeah. in the past, but I want to know how you've done it. Um, that, it. It's a similar sort of thing. It, it, chances are if you have a relationship, an ongoing relationship like that with somebody, you have a relationship with them. You've cr- created some sort of contract or at least some sort of agreement. And what you do is you, you decide on what amount you feel like is fair that you're going to keep going with and then the ones beyond that. Like So if you do six of these things a year, you could say, hey, the next three, I'll go ahead and honor the existing price, but my rates are going up because I keep getting better and have... And, and I'm being more, more people are desiring my services. So at that point, then I'm going, going to raise those, those rates then to, to this. This is what you can expect and let them know exactly what they can expect. But you, you, again, you front load it with like the next two or three, we're going to do it like this because I want to honor our existing price, um, et cetera. Does that, yeah. 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 that make sense? I think you have to be in, in any of these cases, if you're raising your prices or if you're, you're announcing prices to new potential customers. You have to be willing to lose those customers, you know, um, yeah. to kind of draw a line in the sand. And, and partly that means you should have the expectation that there are really other customers, you know, out there um, mm. for you to for you to land. That's a great way of summarizing that part that I felt was so important about where Caleb's wife got to, where she was willing to say, "This is what I cost. If you can't afford that, that's okay. You probably need to find another photographer." You're willing to lose those customers. And and you get to a certain point in your business where it's weird that that's a reality because before then that was not an option. You know, you're just you're just so desperate and hungry. Um, so that's a great way I feel like to summarize that, Corbett, that you're willing to lose those customers. And that is that is a, a big. Everybody who talks about raising prices, I've heard so many freelancers talk about it. Every single one of them are terrified when they do it, and after they do it, they're they're like, oh, why didn't I do this before? You know, why didn't I do this earlier? Because yeah, you're always surprised. Now, you're surprised not if you just, for the first day ever, you put a shingle out. I do web design. And now you're like, you're just, I'm charging $25,000 for a site. And you've never done one before or whatever. Yeah. Like, that's that's not, you're never going to wish you raised more your prices. Than that. These are people who 
have done the work. They understand what the work is. They've built a relationship. They've got a, a network out there. They've done a lot of, they've got the testimonials and the examples and the, all this other stuff. They're the people who are always excited after they raise the rates and always terrified beforehand. Well, and Brendan Dunn, who's a mutual friend, and if by the time this podcast comes out, he hasn't written on the Sparkline, he will shortly. Um, he has a product specifically about raising your raising your prices. It's called Double Your Freelance freelancing rate in 14 days because there's and this thing's highly successful and he sells a lot of copies of it because there's so many people that get caught up in raising their prices Mm. yeah Yeah. and uh in the show notes we'll link to the guest post that barrett brooks did all about building a uh sustainable coaching practice and he was able to i believe quadruple his rates um with some of the stuff that he talks about in the post Mm. I like that. And I, I think that part of what he learned from that was like directly from working with Seth Godin and have, hearing Seth Godin talk about like being um, like a freelancer versus being an entrepreneur and being mm. willing to charge, hey, five grand a day. That's what I'm worth. You know? Yeah. I think it's that conviction about how valuable your thing is. You know, that was the first sort of rambly part I, point I made that was a throwback to episode 36 uh, on pricing. It, it's the same thing with, with your wife, Caleb. She got convicted that like, you know what, this is, this is valuable. And conviction is this word that has this, this history for me from the Jesus days. But it's something that it, it's, like a, it's like you can no less separate, you can no more separate this belief from yourself than you can your left arm or something. You know, it's just something, it's a knee-jerk reaction that like this is valuable. That's what it looks like to really believe that your stuff is valuable, mm-hmm. right? Well, but um, I mean, I think that there needs to be some reality there as well. If you believe it, hopefully it's because it's true. I, I think the the people that we're talking to, trying to get them to feel like they can raise their rates are the ones who do have the skills, but just don't um, don't believe that they're as valuable as they actually are. Yeah, and, and and it's funny the way that these things are bouncing off, and they're all sort of in tension and aligned with one another, because... It's by doing the work, even though you're afraid of doing it, at whatever cheap or free prices almost, that you start to get your chops and you start to get good at a thing. Uh, And slowly, just like your wife, Caleb, you learn to kind of start charging little bits of money here and there for it. And collecting that money is a whole other part of the game you got to learn. And then, though, over time, it's that feedback with as I'm working with a client. They're making a thing and they're like, damn, that looks great. That's perfect. Or I write a headline or I do this. And you get that feedback with them or then you ship the the project to them. They put it up and they're like, oh my God, look at the results. You know, either really positive or negative, right? Uh, These sorts of things over time, I feel like you start to trust yourself. Maybe that's a better word than conviction. You start to trust in the value that you can actually create for people and what's realistic about it. Because it's true. You don't want to just blow smoke up your own ass about, oh, look, look how good I am because I worked with these people. It, the, the one big pricing thing that, that ends up being something I'm not great at, but I realize is so important, is when I can do the work, the homework of finding out how valuable this is to someone. How valuable, so say, you, say you're doing wedding photography, right? How valuable, how, what is that worth to someone over the course of their life? Okay, maybe that's a that's not a great example because it's it's kind of sentimental and, and romantic. Maybe a website to a to a specific kind of of business, a plumber, right? What what va- how valuable is a website is is a plumber's website to their business? How much how many leads and 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 sort of things are happening on their site that directly corresponds to value to money in their pocket to their bottom line? And that's something and doing, Barrett talks about in his guest post about you need to offer like five to 10 times the value of what they're paying you. 
Yeah, in some ways, trying to because because then you got to you got to look at that over the long haul. A website is how valuable is it for the first month, right? What about the second or third when you've optimized it for for search engine stuff and you've put together a content package that helps them blog and get things out there and and, and you're you're setting up their their <clears throat> Google local results and all this other stuff. You're doing all of this stuff. How valuable is that over one month, two months, three months? When you combine that over the course of a year, how much money is that making them? Now, it's one thing to just spitball that and throw a dart at the board. It's a whole other thing to actually have some conviction so about the fact that this is, no, that's the right answer. That This right here, I mean, this is worth at least $250,000 to them over the year because that's the amount of leads that turn into customers that they get from their website over the course of 365 days. Well, if you know that you can make a website that can gain this, this plumber $250,000 worth of leads, what what does that do to your conviction about how valuable your thing is and where and where you price it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's that's the kind of stuff that I never ended up doing. And now I I do a lot. As we're thinking about, you know, getting sponsors for the for the podcast or things like that, I'm constantly thinking, what's this really worth to them? How does this work? And, and because of I think the Chris Johnson founder story and just thinking like that more and more and being in an environment where you get to sell that way. It's no longer about like the soft stuff of how do I convince you and oh yeah, don't you want your website to be beautiful and, and incredible and practical and this, that, and the other? When you get to say, no, no, this will make you this much money typically over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you, and especially that, you know, that that's when you're appealing to a business audience, obviously. But you can put those benefits in other terms. It doesn't necessarily have to be money. Um, yeah. but the more you can quantify it and the more you can say essentially that if you give me X dollars, that will be worth X dollars to you in return. Yeah. And the more you can prove that and have evidence of it, the easier the sale is going to be. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that, that is a whole other way of thinking. It's, it's a whole new level of thinking about your, your whatever, your pricing or, or, or just money in general, what your rate should be and things like that. But it's hard. So the question is, how can you over the next year, how do you, like for in my example of how, how can I know what this, what a website is worth to a plumber? Well, I could probably make some calls and figure that out. Maybe, maybe just create a quick little plan on things that you could do to find out what the value of this thing really is over time. And maybe over the course of the next six months, you can just have that ongoing thing that's te- that you, that ongoing work to, to learn what's really valuable about your thing. Cause that three months or six months spent investigating and doing a little bit of light research on that will probably pay you back over the rest of your life an insane amount. Because when you get to sell in an environment where you're confident on the, the data, essentially, where you're confident about the value that you actually have, it's a completely different ball game. Just like when your wife Kate, was able to say, like, this is how much I cost. I know it's worth this much. I know it's worth a lot more than mm-hmm. that. But this is the, the rate of this is the rate I, I'm at. If you can't afford it, you can go somewhere else. That's totally fine. You know, that that's such a hard place to get to, but looking at the value of your thing, I think, is the secret to getting there. Well, there's also a, a, a little um, there's a, another side of that, which is there's the value to a plumber for a regular website, an average website out there. And that's kind of the ballpark that you're going to play in. But then your goal should be to figure out how to take that average value and add some unique, specific value that you can deliver that no one else is delivering because you focus on something that is, you know, really uh, extra special to plumbers or something that you've borrowed from some other industry that you can apply to the plumbing industry that just makes their website uh, five times more valuable than the average. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we've so we've been talking about freelancers um, and services, but what about products and pricing of products and raising a product's price over time and and that sort of stuff? It's interesting because we we've, we wanted to, um, for instance, with with Fizzle, we landed on thirty five. I won't I won't get into the story on that just yet. We're going to do that in just a little bit. But we landed on thirty five dollars a month for this thing. But who's to say we won't actually have better clients or better fizzlers members a higher quality of of member or whatever a more engaged member that we're able to provide more value to if we wouldn't raise the rates or lower them right who's so the idea of setting up a two sales pages and one's for 35 and one's for 55 is like and we're just we're just directing traffic to one or two of these to see what happens that's always felt like a little goofy to me and weird but some people have done things like that it's a little harder with a membership based sort of thing especially when there's a community involved and everybody's like like what do do you mean you paid 35 dollars right i'm paying 55 you know like like but but a lot of times products they're 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 doing a lot of testing on what the product what the price should be and if it was just a one-off sale for an ebook, like that, that's kind of easy to do. Changing between fifteen and twenty-five, and seeing which which results are better. Um, but so I guess what I would have to delineate between the two, between a membership-based sort or, or not a membership, but a subscription-based product, right? A three-dollar a month or thirty-five or three hundred dollars a month sort of thing, and a and a one-off sort of thirty dollars, three hundred dollars, three thousand dollars sort of pro- project or, or sorry product. So because <clears throat> if you have a one-off thing, it's quite easy. Yeah, you just pay. You could pay eighteen dollars for this book or seventeen dollars for this book. Let's let's do a test and see what works best, right? Right. But but for the other one, I mean, for us, for Fizzle, if we wanted to raise our rates, we would do exactly what I would mention in the previous thing. I think about we would send out an email, do some press. It's like, listen, we're going to raise our rates because of X, Y, and Z, and we can make that case very strongly. Uh, but we're not going to do it for another three weeks. So you've got three weeks to get in or, or whatever. You've got one week to get in at the current price before we raise prices for forever. That's one way of doing it. I feel like that's what, because again, it's just, it's honest. It's trustworthy. It's like, we are worth this much. So that's why we're, we're raising our rates. And we found that that the product performs better and our, our fizzlers perform better when they're paying at this price. So we're going to raise that rate, but we want to give you a last chance to get in at the current rate if it's something you've been thinking about. Right, but and still, I think that's something that Anne Smoylov, I, I believe, mentioned in her product story. But keep going. Well, but so I mean, we we have no way of knowing what the optimal price is because yeah. you you could throw up two sales pages and test it out. But what you really need to do is follow the cohorts that paid different yeah. amounts over the course exactly. of their entire life in the product to see how long they stick around, how much they contribute, what the total revenue is that you get from what each. What the results are for their business, et cetera. Totally, all that kind of stuff. And and so it's really, um, unless unless I'm missing something, to me it seems like an impossibility to know whether $35 is the right price or $30 or $40 or whatever. So yeah. what you have to do in that case is um, look around, see what other people are charging, ask yourself mm-hmm. what it feels, um, realize that there is some sort of linearity to pricing. You know, if you, if you price it at $25, hopefully you'll get more people, um, and they'll stick around for longer that will make up for the fact that you, uh, aren't charging $35 or $45 or whatever it is. Yeah. And this whole lack of clarity around what the ideal price is, is really what, um, the, the jam story gets to, or not the jam story, but the um, Nathan Berry's uh, blog post that he ran over at uh, the Sparkline, which is in the show notes here, about offering multiple prices, right? Because the idea is, yeah. if I 
if I just charge $35, then some people who would want to sign up if it was only $25 are going to miss out. And some people who would be willing to pay $45 for this because it's more valuable to them are underpaying. So if we make three price tiers, then you kind of get, you kind of allow people to self select and, uh, and choose one of those tiers. And that's a whole different can of worms, I guess. But really that's, because of the impossibility of knowing what the ideal price is, that's the strategy that most uh, software as a service vendors are going with. And even you see people who sell ebooks, they go with that price strategy as well to offer three different tiers because they feel yeah. like that's the the way to maximize revenue, essentially. So, but for for a one off. <laughs> Were you guys so? Were you, were you guys pause blocking me there? I think we're you pause blocked blocking. yourself. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah. so for <laughs> you guys didn't know where I was going next. Clearly, <laughs> so for I think a, you pause blocked yourself. So for a one off, <laughs> for a one off product, um, the story is a little bit different, right? For for something that you're just selling once, uh, like an ebook or whatever, you you always had the option of putting something out there, seeing how it goes, and then you could raise prices over time you know, pretty easily and, and decide that, you know, I'm selling this thing. This is how well it's converting. People seem to be getting a lot of value for it. So I'm going to go ahead and raise my price. And I think when you put something out there for the first time, some people have this, this tendency to just say, Oh, I'm just going to charge $9 for it or whatever. Um, and maybe they're underselling themselves. But on the other hand, it's also easy to price something that's a little bit too high. And then you have this, this sort of sticky situation where, it's hard to lower your price because you've already sold so many copies at X price. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of hard to go back on that. And that's something I guess that we experienced with traffic school because we started selling it the first time around, maybe at $400. And then each time that we resold the course, and of course we improved it each time, but every time we reopened the doors, we ended up inching the price up to the point where I think the last time around, like I said, it, it ended up being closer to eight or $900. So in yeah. that case, you know, we were moving up the up price spectrum, and I think the expectation was that it was going to be more expensive each time, so that when people got in, they felt like they were getting a good deal. But you kind of paint yourself into a corner eventually with that. So hold on, I think let, let's get into the let's get into our story with the tiers thing because you brought up the Nathan Berry point about you know, having multiple tiers allows your audience to self select, right? And and having multiple tiers of pricing is a thing is is like a best practice. It's something that statistically will tends to be really, really, I don't know, helpful, select, whatever, to allow them to be able to select their own thing. You can, you end up making more money over time instead of making less money. Is that, is that correct? That's the theory. That's the theory, um, yeah. That's the theory. And it's, exactly. and it's like a commonly accepted best practice. Like you'll hear a lot of bootstrap your software people saying you have to have multiple tiers because you'll be amazed at how many people buy the most expensive thing just because they're the kind of person that buys the most expensive thing. You know, um, so it, it ends up being like this best practice that everybody kind of talks about. But when we decided we had, so originally we had two tiers, we had standard and deluxe or whatever, you know, gold and platinum, or I can't remember exactly what the names were now because we don't have two tiers anymore. We have one tier. It's just what, it's just one, one price for all fizzlers, you know, <laughs> we're all united. But, um, and that's why we got rid of it. We had it for a while and we had some content that only deluxe people can get to. Uh, and the rest everybody could get to. But this felt sort of counter to our to the community we were making and this values that we actually stand for. We stand for, you know, sort of a, 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 the democratization of, of 
business intelligence, of startup sort of education about how to make something that people want and earn a good living doing that independently. Um, so having these two things that someone had to choose, wait, do I want access to all the content or just standard? Am I just a regular fizzler or am I deluxe? Ended up being like this question. And now people, are, some, some of the community is able to get into this part of the forum where they can talk about these kinds of uh, videos and the, the founder stories that we have available where as standard members weren't allowed, weren't able to. It just felt like this weird, ambiguous random line in the sand well, that and we the, drew. the old textbook reason for doing that is you make it a decision between which of them instead of whether or not they're going to buy it all but sure i don't think yeah. that that is as clear cut as the people that wrote that original theory think it is yeah yeah i, I mean there's a lot there's a lot of people out there who, who have, like for instance the wp engine guy talks a lot about that and the, the results have been what like really significant for their business but that's a different business what we had what we had to learn is that that our business is inherently different than most of those because it's a membership oriented community site you know that consists of essentially education and, and entertainment and community it just felt weird to draw a, a, a line between the different groups of fizzlers. well and more importantly i mean people are all there together talking every day in the trenches and we wanted to make it feel like there's not a first class and a second class of membership. Everyone's in it together. Um, and we, uh, the bet that we're making is that for us, that sense of camaraderie and that lack of delineation makes people bond together and makes them enjoy the experience within fizzle, which makes them more likely to stick around, more likely to recommend it, all that kind of stuff. And we're just kind of putting our, our money where our mouth is, I think, in terms of we've always said this is honest online business training. This is about providing you value. It's not about trying to wring out or maximize the most revenue that we possibly can. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, obviously, our goal is our goal is revenue. And our goal is keeping the lights on and keeping ourselves paid and, and doing this for a living because we, we like to do it and we believe in the, in the mission and solving the problem, et cetera, et cetera, right? So revenue is fundamentally... Uh, at any business, it's a it's an important piece, and and maybe profit to be more specific. But um, and, and so you're right in saying like this isn't just like a lovey dovey decision that we made. We kind we also are able to to at least convince ourselves that this is a better business call that will be more likely to keep our lights on because people will stick around longer because there's more of a community because there's not multiple kinds of you know dividing lines between people. Ba- just because it's it's a it's a common best practice to do that on a sales page, you know, and it's so it was a it's it, it interesting because I, it was actually brought up by by Fizzlers by John Muldoon and John Corcoran I believe who and Nick who were thinking about like why does this exist and they, and they wrote us a little private message there in the forum and it was like it just forced us to really think about like why is this existing why did we do that and and i think we had kind of bought the kool-aid and, and we we were making the smart business decisions that we thought we needed to make and it took us a while to realize yeah you know what this is this is different than the thing we want to make this is i think not congruous with the brand and the message and the direction of where fizzle's going and what we could sort of stand for yeah and it, I, I just i kind of applaud us because it was sort of a gutsy thing to to change after people were already getting in at multiple tiers member and like somewhere in the beta group that got in at $29 for the rest of their life. Yep. You know, that's the, what they pay. And some were, were deluxe members and Corbett, tell us a little bit about how we handled that. Yeah. So we, we had that situation where we had people paying $49. We had people paying $29 a month 
And those people were grandfathered for life. And basically the idea it was that, um, you know, if we raised prices, they would, they would keep that price forever. And, um, we decided that our price would be $35 a month going forward for everyone, not just for, you know, the low end members, but for all of them. So then what are we going to do with all the people who were paying $49 for the deluxe version? Do we charge them $35? Um, do we give them extra months? What? And then we also had the complication of some annual members as well. And what we decided in the end was the right thing to do was to grandfather everyone in at the original special charter member price of $29 a month. And that from that day forward, anyone new who signed up would be paying the new rate, the $35 a month. And, you know, we hope that we bought some goodwill there. We felt good about it, at least. Um, Maybe those people who got the grandfathered price have stuck around longer um, than average. And uh, I guess we could go and look at that. But um, the point was, we just wanted to make sure that people felt good and um, that the new price that we set didn't really step on anybody's toes. Hmm. I like well, that. and we chose yeah. the price based on, you know, what was the average price that people were paying between the twenty nine and the forty nine, and we were tracking it for a while just because we used it in our calculations for forecast of revenue and stuff. Yeah, and it was around thirty six, thirty seven dollars. So we just said thirty five. Sounds good. Yeah. Yep. And it was interesting. I mean, it was also interesting to see that early on. I mean, while we had the two tiers, it was basically divided fifty fifty right down the middle between uh, the number of members in the deluxe and the number of members in the standard. Like, it was surprising to me that there wasn't way more standard uh, or way more deluxe in some ways. They were just just right down the middle. Um, so it didn't seem like a hugely significant sort of thing to, to us. I'm glad we made the change, though. It makes so, it makes so much sense. to, And I love, I love a simple $35 a month thing. It's, it's like you pay less for, you know, for meat in a month. And... And it's just thirty five. It's not thirty nine ninety nine. It's not thirty four forty seven. You know. Yep. It's it's just solid. It, it, I felt like that number from the beginning. That that number always felt like the one for me. And again, so to to the point about pricing and things like that. I don't know for some. Even when I before we decided on prices and tiers and all this other stuff, thirty five was the number to me. It just felt like the thing that people would be willing to pay. That's just a little bit more than twelve dollars a month, but it's not yet fifty five. And it just and it felt solid. I like the way the three and the five looked next to each other. And I was like, just ship it. It's done. <laughs> yep. That's how smart guy me makes business big time business decisions. As if the yeah, numbers how, look look pleasing to the eye when they're next yeah, to each other. I'm like the design hodor. Just like hodor, make it look good. <laughs> at least at least you weren't doing it based on numerology or, or astrology or something. Um, well, there was a, there was a good deal. I am a Gemini, so so they, <laughs> we watched Trading Places last night. Oh yeah, real quick, because um, I was like, because it's like Money Month. I was like, I'll, I'll watch Trading Places. It's I used to watch it. I had the VHS of that, and I wore it out. I think it was because I was young, and I had a crush on Jamie Lee Curtis, and she dresses scantily in this. But I was like really young, like sixteen or something. Uh, so I guess that makes it okay. Why would I say that? I don't know. But um, <laughs> there's this amazing part. I don't know. There's so many amazing parts in it, but but now what I'm going to do when I introduce myself to people at parties or something like that, when I'm in party guy mode, is I'm be like, I'll be like, hey guys, I, I'm Chase Reeves, Gemini, because <laughs> Eddie Murphy does that as soon as he gets in the car, introducing himself to the rich people. Eddie Murphy, and what does he say? His name is Billy, Billy St. Vincent, Capricorn. Good to meet you. <laughs> I just loved it so much. 
Uh, what are you, Corbett? Um, Libra. Libra. Caleb? Virgo. Oh, man. I, I noticed there's... It's funny that you mentioned... I was going to say Virgo because the amount of sensitivity that you have to... Um, to specifically my needs as a Gemini, it's 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 palpable. You can feel it. I can feel it, or you can feel it. Everyone can feel it. Bueller. <laughs> Everyone can feel it. I like. I like that. That that's that's how long it took him to like get go from Wait, the thinking too? out into the because he was actually thinking. Can everyone feel it? Huh. Like I felt that was a that was a private moment. Um. Anything else we want to say, guys, before we close up here? We're running out of time. I mean, if there's one thing to get from, from me, there, I can't wait to listen back to this because I, I would love to be able to put into better words than I'm able to right now. This tension in, uh, between, uh, or this balance, I guess, between the conviction of what your thing is worth or trusting the how valuable your thing is, feeling very confident about what this thing is worth. That is in direct tension with, with sort of doing the work for much less than that. For a while, you know, you and it, and and it's weird that both that these are you have to get to the to the one, but you have to get th- to that through a bunch of of crap you have to deal with. So that that that's what I'm excited to listen back for this. But that's the best way I can say it right now. Yeah, and I I I'd say uh, I'd say if you're a service provider and you're working to do your thing and you're really putting the time in the effort in in the beginning. Um, it's okay to do some free work. It's okay to do discounted work, whatever. Um, as long as you're using that as a way to get better and a way to get case studies and, um, to prove that you're valuable. And then you should probably be raising your rates sooner than feels comfortable. If you're actually putting in the work and, uh, you're getting results for people, then you should probably start creeping your rates up sooner than just, you know, you would otherwise feel like it's time. And I would think that you know, the conversion from I don't want to charge anyone anything to I know exactly how much I'm worth and you can't afford me. It takes time. And so like embrace that gap between those two. And I think it will just kind of happen naturally as you work with more clients and as you start to raise your rates, like Cobra was just saying, uh, just like embrace that gap because it'll take some time. It might take you months. It might take you years to get through it. Yeah, I'm going to put in the show notes this this thing I found uh, by James Clear, friend of the show. Tips on raising your rates from 20 freelancers, coaches, and consultants featuring our very own Corbett Lee Barr. So uh, there, that is pretty great. I've been kind of like scanning through it as we've been talking. It's like, there's some interesting little tib- tidbits in here. And and to Corbett, to your point, I'm like, if you really are a freelancer or, or someone really thinking about how, how to do this, here's there's a bunch of great insights in this one. So I'm gonna put that in the show notes. Um, other than that, you guys, I'll talk to you next, next time we talk. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you will. I'll be ready for it. <laughs> I've been Chase Wardman Reeves. I've been Corbett Barr and I've been Caleb Logic. See you guys. I really got to figure out something better to say at the end. Yeah, you really do. I, I just, <laughs> it's, it's the first thing that comes uh, uh, it's like to see you there or see you at another time. See you later, city slicker. Maybe I should just always see you later, city slicker. Maybe I should just always say that and just just let it be like a hello, welcome to the visit show. So there you have it. I do really need to find a slogan for the end there. If you have any ideas, send send them in. Send them to hey guys at fizzle.co. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. 
listen, pretty soon we're going to be doing a, a, another Q&A episode. So send in your questions to fizzleshow.co slash ask. We're looking for some money-oriented questions to answer on the air. So uh, it could be yours. Just let us know what you're struggling with, what you're thinking about, things like that. And while you're at fizzleshow.co, why don't you put a slash 41 at the end of it. F-I-Z-Z-L-E show.co slash 41. And that'll get you uh, straight to the show notes for this episode where we've included a link to everything we talked about, including Caleb's wife's packages and that excellent post from Barrett Brooks about doubling your rates. I mentioned this last show and didn't really get a chance to talk about it much in this episode. But uh, if you want to sell something online, you really have to check out Gumroad. Caleb made a little video kind of walking you through uh, start to finish on using Gumroad. And I made a little mustache on Caleb's video, and I think you should see it. You can find it at fizzle.co slash Gumroad. Our thanks to Gumroad for working with us to create that guide and then to uh, to help us get into more people's hands. We love this tool because stop thinking about the stuff. Get it out for sale, realize nobody cares, and you have a lot of work to do. Listen, people, my hope for you is not for an easy or gentle or cloudless life, but for a heart fully awake and eyes alight with direction, potential, and joy. When you hit your next roadblock, when your ass starts to singe from the fire, just remember, you're not alone. No matter how hard it gets and how hot it gets, rest in the company of good friends and remember, you are not alone. Find care, take care, serve hard, and dig in, and I will see you next Fizzle Friday.